We just finished a wonderful midweek Bible study uh, for the last, for this winter, in the book of Isaiah, <clears throat> and what an amazing study that was. And I had the privilege of leading one of the discussions uh, from chapters uh, 46 to 53, which included four, uh, three of the four servant songs that Isaiah presented. And uh, this morning I thought we would unwrap chapter 53. So this may sound familiar, some of the things I share that you men were, uh, were there as part of that study. John MacArthur says that uh, Isaiah chapter 53 is uh, one of the most, probably the most astounding chapter in the entire Bible because it unwraps the gospel story more clearly perhaps than any other chapter, even including in the New Testament. Uh, Rachel and I have been listening to some of the testimonies of uh, Jewish converts, people that, that totally rejected Jesus until they read chapter 53 of Isaiah. And they discovered Messiah has already come. Messiah has already paid for their sins. And he's Jewish, like them, probably even more Jewish than them. What an exciting discovery for uh, our brothers and sisters of the Jewish uh, race. Um, Yesterday, yesterday evening, uh, Rachel and I stopped by the local store to pick up some groceries, and as we were checking out, just as we were finishing, the uh, young lady uh, that was checking us out said, well, do you have any exciting plans for the weekend? <laughs> and my thoughts went to, well, I, I could tell her about the antique car I just pulled home to try to restore. <clears throat> Pray for me on that. Um, and then I just said, you know, I have the privilege of preaching at our church tomorrow. And she said, oh, what are you going to preach on? And I said, Isaiah chapter 53, talking about Jesus and uh, his coming as Messiah. She said, and this is a great question, what's the takeaway? <laughs> Talk about the need to summarize <laughs> a 40-minute sermon in a few seconds which is a good uh, habit to get into, um, I said, you know, it's all about Jesus who came to die for our sins on the cross. Isn't it amazing that he loved you so much that he died on the cross for you? And she said, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs> she didn't even know that today is not Easter. So pray for this gal. And uh, if you ever go into, is it a grocery outlet? Yeah. Uh, just smile, because you, you never know uh, what opportunities will come your way. <clears throat> Many Old Testament prophets, of course, uh, pointed to Messiah's coming someday, to reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but Isaiah is the one that shows the tremendous cost of attaining that crown, and that cost was the cross, of course, and these verses are going to take us from tragedy to a wonderful triumph, from almost a funeral dirge to death-defying shout of victory uh, when Jesus finally returns. Uh, I regard it as a, a poetic masterpiece of history that is to be fulfilled from Isaiah's time 700 years into the future, and some of it even beyond where we stand today when Jesus returns. <clears throat> It's amazing prophetic dimensions alone uh, really 
erase the skepticism from anyone to think that uh, the Bible is not divinely inspired. <clears throat> a Westmont professor uh, tried to determine the odds of one man fulfilling even eight of Isaiah's prophetic statements that all come true 700 years in the future, and he determined that the odds were one in 10 to the 17th power. I think that's one in one quadrillion chances that this would all come true. Is God not the author of scripture? <clears throat> it's interesting that rabbis won't even allow Isaiah 53 to be studied or read in their synagogues. And why is that? It's because it's obviously too messianic. And their paradigm of what Messiah should be does not fit the way Isaiah is describing their, their Messiah. So they continue to deny and uh, defy and shred and deform God's written truth, even as Satan tried to deform and defy God's incarnate truth 2,000 years ago. So the gospel theme, if I were to summarize a sermon in a sentence, is that Jesus humbly fulfilled his Father's will by becoming our sacrifice for sins. And the last three verses of chapter uh, 52 are actually a, a wonderful introduction to chapter 53. I think they belong together because it tells us <clears throat> of how our Savior suffered. It adds to this whole picture. And the first thing you see, if you open your Bibles to Isaiah 52, verse 13, is a very positive statement. He says, See, my servant will act wisely, that is, he will prosper, <clears throat> and he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So it's a wonderful statement about the future success of Jesus' ministry, as well as his future exaltation. But then in verse 14, we, it, the whole mood changes. And he says, just as there were many who were appalled or astonished at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. And a couple chapters back in chapter 50, verse 6, Isaiah adds this interesting insight here. He says, and this is Jesus talking, isn't it? I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So crucifixion is really the most awful, humiliating, disgraceful, painful execution that the Romans could come up with. Uh, it says, I gave my back to those who strike. Uh, that's not just punching his back. That was the whipping that he got, not just with a single whip, but with the kind of whip that uh, has several strands on it with the little metal pieces embedded in his strands. And it was designed so that the torturer could lay it across his back and then pull, which would rip the back. And uh, they do that, do that enough times, and you get down to the bone. Jesus suffered horribly in the scourging. And then you add to that uh, the punching, the spitting, the pulling out of the beard. Those of you who have beards and you have a grandchild or child that wants to pull on it, ah, no, stop, that hurts. They pulled it out. And then the crown of thorns, 
Those thorns are long, pressing down into his skull. I believe that no artist and no movie maker can possibly portray the reality of what Jesus Christ went through and to show how badly deformed Jesus was before he even got to the cross. I believe Satan was trying to take him out before Isaiah 53 could be fulfilled. Verse 15, there's an interesting verb here that is uh, debatable as to what it means. Uh, I remember in Hebrew class, we, were, we had a debate about this word startle or sprinkle. So he will sprinkle or startle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. So I see both words as actually fitting the context here. You look at the word sprinkle, and of course that fits the sacrifice, the sacrificial system, what the, the priest did with the blood of the sacrifice, sprinkling it on the altar as a picture of atoning or covering for the sin of the sacrificer. And that fits with the context here. But the word startle actually speaks of how amazed the nations, the ethne, would be to see what the Messiah would have to endure, something they could not understand at the time, but they would later. And when you picture the glory and power and majesty of our coming Savior at, at the end of the tribulation, at his second coming, <clears throat> not the rapture, which is the next thing on the schedule, in contrast to what these people saw, that wounded corpse nailed to a cross, it's no wonder the nations will be startled. They'll be amazed. This is the same person? <clears throat> so Isaiah says that someday, even those evil rulers will have to bow, and they will try to hide from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, according to Revelation chapter 6, and they will not be able to hide. But in contrast, Zechariah chapter 10, verse, verse uh, 10, uh, talks about uh, the, the Jewish people. And it tells us that Israel will look on me, on whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child as if they had lost their only son. There will be a remnant of Jews who make it through the tribulation, and from a lot of the Bible uh, eschatologists that are studying scripture, they, they believe that that number of Jews will be about one-third of all the Jewish population. So many will be wiped out by the Antichrist during the tribulation. But those that make it through, it says, will understand that, uh, what they did, and will finally understand what Jesus did for them and what we learned a couple weeks ago from uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. All the remnant of Israel will look back and realize this was our Messiah, and they'll mourn for him. But until then, a terrible price must be paid for our sin. And chapter 53 then continues this amazing, unbelievable report and as John MacArthur says, it's like a future generation of Jews looking back 2,600 years 
to what they did to Messiah, and they will understand what a horrible thing it was for them to, to reject their Messiah. So we come here to verse 1 of, of, of uh, 53, and we find that the servant lived humbly in rejection. <clears throat> and he first acknowledges that this is an unbelievable message. He says, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who would believe that the promised Messiah would face an execution squad prompted by the very people that he came to save and reign over? Who would believe that? Isaiah knew that sin's price had to be paid. It was pictured in every single sacrifice that the Jews brought to the temple in, in the shedding of blood uh, to, in order to attain forgiveness and, uh, and eternal life. But how could they have so mistreated their Messiah, who came to do exactly that for them? They didn't understand that God would have to bear his mighty arm to accomplish this amazing work of salvation through his son and through his son's death. It was an unbelievable message. It was, he was an unattractive man, verse 2. He grew up before him, his father, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Notice that Jesus grew up. He was human, and he grew in wisdom and stature, mentally and physically, and in favor with God and man, spiritually and socially and relationally, according to Luke 2.42. This uh, <coughs> tender shoot refers to a sucker branch that needs to be cut off. <clears throat> and that's kind of the way the people treated him, isn't it? And a root out of dry ground, that's an ugly thing. And it's also a dangerous thing, isn't it? Because you trip over roots that stick up. Did anybody ever trip over Jesus in his teaching? He had no beauty or majesty to attend to him, us, to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was nothing special. He didn't run for physical uh, offices. He wasn't the captain of the local Nazareth football team, if they had one. Uh, he wasn't a standout in the crowd. <clears throat> and sadly, he was an unwanted Messiah. So as a man seeking to save his own people, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. So during his, his three-year ministry, Jesus expect, uh, experienced every single emotion that you and I would and do, and he experienced the extreme rejection because he spoke the truth in love about who he was and about who they were in relationship to him. And I'll bet everybody in this room has experienced to some degree or another unrequited love. When you try to reach out to someone and say how much you care about them, how much you love them, how much you want to be around them, and they say, get away from me, your love means nothing to me. That means you mean nothing. That's deep pain, isn't it? And Jesus experienced that. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. That phrase means as if he didn't even exist. So these are very self-condemning statements by Jews that finally realize what they have done to the Messiah. It's interesting that the temple elite, the rulers of the Jews, didn't even call him by his name, Yeshua, 
Joshua, uh, which means God saves. Instead, they call him Yeshu, which means let his name be blotted out. That's how much he was rejected. So the, the servant lived humbly in rejection, and secondly, the servant suffered horribly as our replacement. He was a silent substitute. Verse 4 says, Surely he took up our pain, bore our suffering, and because he was fully human, he could fully experience all the physical, emotional, spiritual, relational pain that separation from God would bring. He experienced it. And Jesus felt it with every single gasp of breath that he could get out while he was hanging from that cross, pushing up against those nailed feet in order to even gain a lung full of air so that he could speak or breathe. My God, my God, why? Why? You know, he should, we should have had to suffer eternal torment and pain for the sins that you and I have committed, but he did it for us. Isn't that good news? Yet, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. So those who were shouting crucify, crucify out there in that crowd thought that he was an imposter from hell trying to portray himself as the Messiah, the Son of God. It's no wonder they wanted him out of there. And Satan, of course, was helping them to think that they were doing God's will by ridding the earth of him. And the more they, infliction they could render, the more the crime fit him. But, great adversative here in verse 5, uh, that establishes their own guilt. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So he was the innocent one. I was the guilty one. It was my sins and my transgressions that he was paying for on that cross, not his own. Crushed speaks of being weighted down under a very heavy load, right? And what was it that was weighing Jesus down on that cross? It's your sin and my sin. And what a crushing experience that must have been. And I'll bet it was more painful, that pain was more painful than even the physical pain that he was going through. Uh, it was as if I had committed, as if he had committed, every one of my godless deeds and was being punished for every single one of them and yours. The punishment that, uh, that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds, by his welts caused by this whip, we are healed. So because God punished his son instead of me, I can have peace, I can have shalom with God, wholeness of life, completeness, the same kind of peace that Jesus had with his father before Calvary. And it's because of his grace alone that I am no longer an enemy of God. I am his friend. I'm his, part of his family now. What an amazing transformation. 
Because Jesus took the judgment for my sin and has bought me, brought me spiritual healing. Don't read physical healing into that. It doesn't fit here. And it's not just, it means he, he paid for our sins completely. This is the doctrine of propitiation. Paid in full, there is no more that I owe for my sin. I don't have to pay for any of it. And it's, and it's not just put in a filing cabinet someplace in heaven to be brought out again and exposed at the judgment seat of Christ. Saying, oh, remember this, remember this, Scott? Remember what you did back then? Wiped out, my friends, never to be brought up against you again because Jesus paid it all. We are the straying sheep. He was the silent sacrifice. We are the straying sheep. Verse 6, we all like sheep, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the shepherd could have said, good riddance to bad rubbish. Those rebellious beasts Get out of here. See, sin is missing the mark, isn't it? It's falling short of the glory of God. Sin is the establishment of the creature as an independent being from his creator. We no longer have responsibility to our creator because I'm my own God. <clears throat> we don't need his boundaries. This verse, Isaiah 53, 6, was the first verse I was ever exposed to in the Bible. It was in June of 1957. I was a, uh, an eight-year-old at Rome Chapel. That's the name of the church that I later came to pastor. Um, and I sat in that primary department next to my older sister, and the lady described, described to us that we are all like sheep. We've sinned. But Jesus was the sacrificial lamb that paid for our, our sin. And, and it just made sense to this little eight-year-old that, hey, if he died for me, I'll give my life for him. And so we went back in the little furnace room and my sister and I accepted Christ. I still have a little piece of paper that Pat Cowden signed saying, I accepted Jesus on this day. Uh, <clears throat> uh, sheep. Sheep is a great analogy here. How many of you have ever raised sheep? Okay, we've got a few of you out there. Uh, we had a little flock of Romneys back when I think it was sixth or seventh grade. I think it was my older brother's FFA project from Mount Baker. And uh, it wasn't a big flock, but we had to build a fence. So we built a nice, beautiful wooden white, we painted it white, nice wooden fence. And uh, so they knew their boundaries, we thought. But the problem was, on the other side of that fence, there were a hundred more acres out there for them to enjoy. It wasn't our acreage. But uh, <clears throat> we found out that our fence, we shouldn't have built a wooden fence and made it nice and pretty because they found every weak spot in that fence. And if one sheep gets out, guess what? <laughs> They're all out there. And I just hated going out into that big field and trying to round up this flock of sheep and get them back into the corral where they got out. I think that these sheep thought that Isaiah 53, 6 was written just for them. <laughs> <clears throat> what made them think that they were any safer outside of our boundaries? We had heard cougars screaming out in the woods beyond the field. They wouldn't last long out there. 
My thought was, go ahead, run wild. See what I care. <clears throat> My brother probably would have cared. <clears throat> but aren't we glad that Jesus doesn't have that attitude towards us? <laughs> All we like sheep. Instead, <clears throat> the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Father did the unthinkable to his Son. It was the Father's will. Isn't that interesting? To punish his Son instead of us? He was stricken by the Lord and afflicted. How? By allowing evil men to torture Jesus to the extent of what our sin deserved. It's hard to comprehend, isn't it? And I believe the reason we are not spared <clears throat> most of the details of the crucifixion here in Isaiah, as well as in the Gospels, is so that we can understand how offensive and how egregious our sin is to God. And you can almost feel Isaiah's pain <clears throat> as he's recording what he is receiving from the Holy Spirit, these prophetic images of a future Messiah who would stand between us and the Father's wrath against sin. And the payment, what Christ paid for our sin, describes the depth of our depravity. <clears throat> the servant lived humbly in rejection, and he suffered horribly as our replacement. And third, the servant was condemned hatefully, though righteous. He was a beaten sacrifice. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. <coughs> Excuse me. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Well, now I've never been, uh, never had to face physical abuse or torture for being a Christian, but if I did, I probably wouldn't remain silent. Rachel and I have had to sit quietly uh, through emotional abuse at an arbitration setting involving a real estate sale and listen to our accusers make extravagant lies and statements against us, and we had to sit there silent. Even our lawyer had to sit there silent. <clears throat> it, was, uh, it was really hard. But when they started making irrelevant comments that slurred my wife, that's when I could no longer be silent. And my voice came out, and I wanted to do the Will Smith thing. <laughs> <clears throat> but of course, that would have been very uh, carnal of me to do that. It was just so hard to sit there and maintain my composure being lied at. <clears throat> Jesus faced horrendous abuse and none of the millions of animals that were sacrificed for the hundreds and hundreds of years prior to Calvary ever experienced a priest beating up that, that animal before its throat was slit and the blood was caught. But this sacrifice is different, isn't he? Satan so filled his accusers and torturers with with enough hatred to totally mar and deform God's perfect sacrifice. Did Satan know that Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world? You bet he did. John the Baptist was preaching it down to Jordan River 
And Satan knew that long before John did. So, uh, did he think he could really keep Jesus from the cross by scourging him so bad? Causing him to lose so much blood that he would faint and not get to the cross? Did he thought he could discourage him from going on to the cross? Of course, Jesus knew what he was facing. Jesus had battalions of angels available to him. All he had to do was say the word, but he didn't because he knew his mission. And verse Verse 8 speaks of a botched trial here. It says, by oppression, and that was from his arrest and, a, and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. Jesus had no defenders. <clears throat> and the whole trial was a mockery. It was a fiasco. It was done at night. It was done just before the Sabbath and the Passover lamb festival and all of that because the rulers felt this, this could push it quickly uh, to get Pilate to give a, a guilty verdict of Jesus and uh, go on with their Sabbath cel- celebrations. And as Pilate sat on that bema seat, which is what his throne was called, what was his assessment of Jesus? I find No fault in this man. So why didn't uh, he just let him go? Because the rulers got their way, didn't they? They they broke, they actually broke their own law by not waiting 40 days to allow a condemned criminal (coughs) to have further witnesses to make sure that he was indeed guilty. And John MacArthur uh, told us, or said that even the Talmud, that's the Jewish writings and and, uh, teachings, had to change their records to erase this illegal trial so it wouldn't show up in their records. It was, uh, there was a borrowed tomb involved here, verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Crucified criminals uh, did not have the opportunity to have a, a, a burial. Unless, of course, some relative was able to retrieve the body. Uh, the bodies were normally just thrown into the Jewish, the, the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, the burning garbage dump, which is called the Valley of Gehenna, or the pit. God would not allow this to happen to his son. God even put in, in King David's mind to write 300 years before Isaiah wrote this, uh, this verse from Psalm 16, verse 10. I'm sorry you can't see it there. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the pit, neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And David was certainly not talking about himself being the Holy One. <coughs> A rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, got permission from Pilate to retrieve Jesus' body off that cross and put him in his tomb. How many of you have been to the garden tomb? A few of you. I hope that the church can indeed get to Israel one of these days because that's a beautiful, beautiful place to be, very solemn, very humbling. The servant lived humbly in rejection. He suffered horribly as a replacement. He was condemned hatefully, though righteous, and the servant fulfilled honorably redemption's plan. There was a pleased father involved, 
And it's always good when a, a, a father sees his son doing something that pleases him and it's the right thing to do for that father to say, boy, that was good. Thanks for obeying me. The verb here trans, is, is best translated by the New American Standard Bible. Uh, in some of your Bibles, it says it was the Lord's will, uh, but the word pleased fits this better. It's the better translation. It was the Lord's will to crush him, putting him to grief. So our hearts, again, cry out, how could God do this to his son? How could God be pleased to crush his son? So here in this passage, we see the full spectrum of God's holiness, his righteousness, and his justice, and the full extent of his love stretched out for you and I. Here's how Reverend David Needham, who was one of our professors at Multnomah, and I know some of you in this room have had him, he said, apart from the immeasurable sacrifice by both father and son, they would never ever be able to release their limitless love to an otherwise lost and sinful world. So the pleasure that God the Father received from forsaking his son while he hung on that cross was in knowing that he had accomplished the work of reconciling the world unto himself. 2 Corinthians 5.17 His son <clears throat> was obedient. It satisfied the Godhead's redemption plan, and Jesus was part of that plan in eternity past, a plan established before you and I were ever created. So it was not the agony of the crucifixion that made God pleased, was it? <clears throat> he suffered too. God the Father suffered too. But it was Christ's sufficient payment as our guilt offering, the, God's perfect lamb that blessed him, that pleased him. And as Jesus breathed out his last, his father was satisfied. The debt was paid. Satan's head was crushed. As it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first time the gospel is ever mentioned in the Bible, it's way back then, <coughs> and uh, Jesus could gasp out his last, his final word from that cross, and in the Greek it's one word, tetelestai. It is what? Finished. Finished. Done. Forever. Never to be brought up again, your sin. It's done. <clears throat> Think about this. If God was not pleased with his son's sacrifice, where would you and I be today? We would have no hope of eternity, no hope of having our sins forgiven. Instead, now we can be a part of a purchased family, purchased by Jesus' blood. Last half of verse 10 says, And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he, Jesus, will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This implies the resurrection, doesn't it? Do you see the life there? Jesus is the first fruits of all who will come to faith in him and be raised from the grave someday when he calls us home. The first fruits, his offspring. And 1 Corinthians 15, 22 puts it this way, in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own time, Christ the firstfruits, and then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Verse 11, 
After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his, by his knowledge or by our knowledge of him. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. So as sinners understand and accept by faith, the very faith that the Spirit of God gives us, and accept the fact that he has died in my place as my substitute, we are given life. We exchange our sin for his righteousness. Isn't that wonderful? Our guilt transferred to the guiltless one, forgiven, justified, clothed in his righteousness. And finally, verse 12, therefore. Finally, the conclusion <clears throat> that's based on this amazing sacrifice we, we finally come to here. I, that's God the Father, will give him, Jesus, my servant's son, an inheritance among a great multitude, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. So dividing the spoils only comes as a result of having the victory in a battle. And this is the greatest spiritual battle of all ages, the battle that Jesus won on that cross. The spoil, the, the, the defeated don't get the spoils, do they? We are the spoils of that battle. We are in his inheritance. Isn't that neat that he wants us in his family? He was willing to pay the price for all of us to come to faith in him and someday spend eternity with him. <clears throat> because, so here's the reason that he will reign, because he poured out his life unto death. He totally emptied himself. There was nothing more that Jesus could give to pay for our sin. And <clears throat> was numbered with the transgressors, and here's the bottom line conclusion, my friends, the last line of chapter 53. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgression, transgressors. He bore our sin, and now he stands as our legal advocate before the Father. And his triumph over sin and death becomes our victory when we trust in his death for us. Spurgeon put it this way. In the wondrous act of expiation or restitution, by our great substitute, the Godhead is more gloriously revealed than in all the creations and providences of the divine power and wisdom. Imagine that. Salvation was God's greatest, most glorious, and shall we say, most difficult work to accomplish, where God... Where, where he had to roll up his sleeves and bear his mighty arm. And why is that? Because of the ignominy of sin and the shame that it brought on his son by identifying himself with us so completely with prostitutes and killers and child abusers and abortionists and rapists and terrorists like the Apostle Paul. And you can add, and I can add to that list, all the sins that I have committed and realize that Jesus identified with each one of those to the extent that he who has no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. What a wonderful God we have. What an amazing Savior we have. And I hope that you can rejoice in him today because Jesus humbly fulfilled his Father's will to become the sacrifice for your sins and mine. 
So how do we respond to this? Well, if, if you uh, are still struggling with this whole issue of salvation and, and, and trying to work out your own salvation and prove to God that you are good enough, can I just say stop? Stop right there and remember this. Jesus paid it all. There is, there is no good act or no number of good acts that you can do to qualify you for heaven. There is no sin bad enough or list of bad sins bad enough for you not to qualify for God's grace displayed on the cross of Christ. So if you've never settled this issue before, why not today? What a glorious time to accept and finally settle that issue in your heart. Jesus paid it all for me. I want to give my life to him. Confess your sin. Accept the free offer of salvation that he offers and you will be saved. And then for those of us who have already been saved, then there's that other big S word called sanctification. How are you doing in your walk with God? How are you, uh, are, are you enjoying the joy of your salvation? Are you experiencing um, his, uh, his forgiveness? And when you're tempted to fall back into those old patterns, those old ways of sin, just picture Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you. Imagine what he did for you. That has saved me so many times from falling back into the old ways. And then rejoice that your sins are forgiven and you have the hope of heaven when you die. And someday you'll be standing with the angels up there and singing with them worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, this, this message is indeed unbelievable. And we thank you, God, that you're the one that gives us the faith to believe it. You're the one that gives us the ability to accept the fact that you are God, that you are the one who sent your son to sacrifice himself for our sins. And, and Father, we just, we just praise you again this morning and acknowledge that you indeed are, are worthy to receive all glory and honor. For we were errant lambs, and the perfect lamb shed his blood for us. Lord, help us to live in the reality of that sacrifice, and may we uh, be the kind of people that demonstrate the glory of, of that, of that uh, death and resurrection so that we can live in the newness of life you ask us to. In Jesus' name, amen.